0: Your flexibility. May it please the court, counsel? This is an appeal from an order dismissing my client's pro se habeas petition. Yes, it is. I'm sorry, Your Honor, is there another technical issue? some feedback but
1: I'm not inclined to do much with it uh, given the fact that we could hear you and understand you even with the feedback I, I would I, I don't know that it would be a good idea to, to, to try try something else at this point because we can at least can you understand him Judge Kovas? I'm good to go all right so let's let's proceed It's fine.
0: Mr. Giese alleged that he received ineffective assistance of counsel when his trial counsel failed to pursue a downward departure based on aberrant behavior. The government sought to dismiss his habeas petition by arguing that Mr. Giese's conduct constituted otherwise using a dangerous weapon. That was a different position than the government took In the underlying sentencing it argued and accepted the finding that geesey had merely brandished a dangerous weapon well counsel i'd like to ask you about that That, that's a confusing issue for
2: me i mean did the, the government didn't argue that did it um that was in the context i believe of an um an enhancement right an upward enhancement and the psr came out and the government did not object um, Correct. Does that make a difference uh, as opposed to if the government had sought uh, the four points instead of the three and the district court had made a finding on that, rejecting the government's position? Because what happened here is the government just didn't seek that enhancement under the guidelines. And I'm wondering if you think that makes a difference.
0: I don't think it does. I think that the government um, accepted the classification of this conduct as brandishing. It was in the PSR. They were asked whether they agree with that classification, and they they accepted it. And if you look at application note, note 4A, this is an either-or classification. It can be brandished or otherwise used. And under application note 5 of U.S. Sentencing Guideline 1B1.1, if there are two potential classifications that can be used, the, the conduct that leads to the greater offense level should be chosen, and so. In and this can case, I ask you, did, did the district court make a factual finding, and if so,
2: when did it do that?
0: It didn't make an express factual finding with respect to whether he brandished or otherwise used, but it did bake into the uh, offense level that it uh, that it reached uh, level 22, and in its statement of reasons it agreed with, and it made the statement, the court adopts the pre investigation report without change, and that's at Appendix 53. And so the, the, the qua- categorization of um, brandishing was a, at least a fact of the advisory guideline range that the court used, and the court did say at the sentencing hearing, quote, the advisory guideline range does take into consideration the fact that if anyone tried to report it within 30 minutes, that the bomb would go off. Now, obviously, in the context of this case, part of our um, position is the government shouldn't be able to, at a, in a habeas, in a collateral proceeding, take a different position than it did with respect to uh, the underlying proceeding. The alternative argument is that both the court and the government, in its original categorization, got it right, that this is brandishing, and does not rise to the level of otherwise using.
1: Now, is this? are you proceeding on an estoppel theory or a waiver theory or both? Because I'm struggling um, for a lot of reasons with this argument. I think it's difficult. But I'm, one, one thing I'm struggling with is what box to put it in. Is it the waiver box or the estoppel box?
0: I think it's a waiver because the government has the burden to, given the binary nature of otherwise using or brandishing, and the obligation to seek uh, the greater of the two if either applies, that they did not seek to categorize it as um, otherwise using. So that's, I guess, the threshold issue, is whether they can change their position in the collateral proceeding. And our view, is they shouldn't be able shouldn't so to do so. Does it does it matter at all, and it, it might not, but does it matter
2: that the government had the burden on the enhancement, but the defendant would have had the burden on the downward
0: departure? I, I I don't think it does because it's a habeas ineffective assistance claim. Um, but you're right that the government has the burden on the enhancement, and and to the extent that the argument again my my client's pro se habeas petition was I wasn't this was never discussed there was an available departure and he never sought to raise it so he was ineffective in that regard. The government argued in seeking to dismiss it, the habeas petition, well, he would have never been eligible for it to begin with. So it it fails as a matter of law. But the underlying sentence is the brandishing categorization. So to to go back to Judge Strauss's question, I think it is a waiver that they can't take inconsistent positions in a subsequent collateral proceeding. Well, let me ask you this. A waiver is
1: the intentional relinquishment of a known right. The Supreme Court's been saying that for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. When the the government refused to object to the brandishing enhancement at the original proceeding, did they intentionally relinquish the right to argue the use of a dangerous weapon
0: later? Well, I think that they had, because it was their opportunity to prove that at the time and it's their burden to do so, then that's the effect. Once once my client, Subsequent that in the collateral proceeding it doesn't permit them to switch switch tax so to speak and argue Actually, this was brandishing or excuse me. Actually. This was otherwise using Okay And With respect to the merits in terms of how this should be categorized um, You know it's our position that if you look at Miller, which is the 11th Circuit case if you look at um... Banton, which is a Ninth Circuit case, there is a specific act taken with the object. There's uh, lighting the fuse, there's pressing a detonator. In those cases, there is something more than merely showing it and making some step to represent that it's dangerous. It, you know, when my client walked in the bank, he had a box, and he made some statements so that, to create the impression that it was a dangerous weapon. And I don't think the government meaningfully dis- distinguishes be c- between a conduct that's necessary to create the impression of harm and something more that's required in order to raise it to the level of um, otherwise using. And, and if I think this case is, is better uh, situated within the District of Nebraska opinion and within the District of Maine case that we cited where the defendant was not precluded from seeking an aberrant behavior downward departure. Can I ask you about, I know you want to reserve a little time for
1: rebuttal, um, United States versus Payne, And this may be a little unfair because I don't think either party relies on it. But I'll tell you what happened. Uh, somebody, uh, An individual robbed a bank, pulled a handgun, pointed the handgun at the teller, and we said that that was sufficient to constitute use of the dangerous weapon. So pointing it, um, why isn't there at least that much in this case, if not more, by leaving the cardboard box on the on the counter?
0: I think the distinction is that the otherwise use has to be referenced in some point you have to be using the the purported dangerous weapon in order to uh, create additional fear and there are cases in that fit the fact pattern you just say where the, a specific person is directed to take an action. Um, whether it's pointing a gun or or something like that. And I think just basically in this instance it's better viewed as um, brandishing because the same statements that are being used to effectuate fear, to create that mental impression, there's not anything more beyond that. Again, he's got an empty box. He has to do something to be classified as a dangerous weapon. And here I don't think there's something beyond that in order to take it up to the higher level. I'd reserve my my time for rebuttal, Your Honor. You may, thank you. Uh,
1: Mr. Clapper.
3: Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court and counsel on behalf of the United States, we're asking this court to affirm the district court's position. Uh, David Geesey seeks relief under 2255, claims his attorney's performance was deficient, and his claim is that his attorney was deficient for not seeking a downward departure under 5K 2.20. The simple fact is, and the analysis of this case, the district court properly ruled that 5K 2.20 wouldn't have been available. Now, one of the arguments from defense counsel here is that we shouldn't be able to go back and take a different position. Well, of course we should, because that's the analysis under Strickland. One, was it a deficient performance? But two, would it have changed the outcome? So we have to look at what analysis would have occurred if the objection would have been made. Mr. Clapper, why doesn't the
2: waiver argument work? I guess I kind of view this in two ways. One, it's possible the district court made a finding below by accepting the the PSR, and secondly, it's possible that the government waived the ability to 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 litigate this issue by not asking for the four points. Why don't those? Why don't either of those or one of those
3: arguments work? Uh, <clears throat> Judge, uh, the reason they don't work is because without the objection being made or the seeking of the downward departure, the government doesn't have the opportunity then to present evidence to challenge that. So in this particular case, specifically, had defense counsel sought departure under 5K 2.20 for uh, and claimed that it wasn't otherwise used, two things probably would have happened. One, the government would have argued against that, presented the facts. And two, would have sought the higher enhancement under the guidelines for the bank robbery 2B 3.1, the uh, four-point enhancement for a dangerous weapon uh, being otherwise used. What we have here is what typically happens in uh, cases where there's a plea agreement. There are facts that aren't contested when the pre-sentence report comes out. Uh, the parties, you know, accept what, the outcome is, and uh, proceed forward. If there's something that is highly contested or the, and that might be because the range doesn't work out appropriately, then both parties have the opportunity to present evidence. But without the um, seeking of the downward departure, or the objecting to the enhancements, It is not a waived argument by the government. It didn't relinquish a known right because it wasn't contested at the sentencing. Was there new evidence that you presented
1: in front of the district court, uh, paper-wise or otherwise, um, in the Section 2255 proceeding that wasn't wasn't present at at the first proceeding? Anything new? I don't believe there was anything new, Your Honor. So does that undercut your argument that the, that the government didn't really have a chance to present anything at the, at the first proceeding? I mean, I could see the district court coming in and saying, well, under your argument, now there's something new. Now it's clear that it was actually used. And of course, at that point, then y- your argument makes sense. But does your argument make sense when essentially the district court is operating off the same record? In other words, the district court is just looking at what happened in the first proceeding and reaches an entirely
3: different conclusion. Well, what you have here, though, is the district court accepting the pre-sentence report, its factual determinations and its guideline calculations, as is without any objections or additional evidence. And the reason it's reasonable for the district court to do that is because it happens all the time. We only present extra evidence when there's an objection by either party. So for whatever reason, both parties in this case, with the pre-sentence report as it turned out and the resulting guideline calculation and the range, felt that that was appropriate. It, counsel,
2: isn't it true that the government's generally obligated to seek the higher enhancement
3: if the facts support that enhancement? Well, that'd be DOJ policy, um, but that would be uh, mostly to seek a conviction of the highest uh, penalized crime, not necessarily the enhancements. And uh, we're not under, you know, every case kind of plays out on its own. In this particular case, The facts are as stated in the pre-sentence report, and both sides acquiesced as to that, and the district court agreed with that as well. If I understand what the district court did here, um, I
2: think the district court said that it had not made factual findings. It had simply accepted the PSR, if I remember. Uh, And then the district court did not, if I understand you, did not make additional factual findings uh, in the 2255 so that that seems a little odd to me maybe i'm just misunderstanding how it played out it seems like in the 2255 the court did rely on the psr maybe just in the same way it did below
3: i in the 2255 it relied on the facts in the 20 in the pre-sentence report that is true there were facts in the pre-sentence report that would preclude the uh, application of the downward departure under 5k 2.20 and my understanding is and I can ask defense counsel too but defense counsel is not really
2: contesting the underlying facts in the PSR is that your understanding my understanding is just I don't know if it's a legal or a factual or a mixed question on the application of which enhancement but there's no real factual dispute about what happened
3: that day. Is that your understanding, Mr. Clapper? It is, your honor. They, you know, this is a, a case, he had a fake bomb, but the it, that's not contested. It was presented and shown to the bank employees, that's not contested. He made verbal uh, announcements to uh, the bank employees and threatened them. Uh, to detonate the bomb if they contacted the police within 30 minutes. That's not contested. And what also isn't contested is the effect that it had on the employees, uh, which was uh, testimony presented by those employees at the sentencing hearing itself. And so the, the real issue here is, you know, again, is it otherwise used? And the district court wasn't asked to make that decision at the sentencing level, but if it had, all of the facts were available to the district court at that time to deny uh, seeking that uh, downward departure. I don't know where I'm at on time here, but.
1: You got about a minute and a half left.
3: I think that's all I have.
1: Uh, What about, I'm just going to follow up, what about the the merits of the issue, which is, was it actually the use of a dangerous weapon here on on the merits once we get there? And if so, why?
3: I think there's plenty of cases out there that say that objects that uh, aren't dangerous weapons but are used as dangerous weapons satisfies the requirement of a dangerous weapon definition under the guidelines. Uh, I don't think that's contested at all, whether it's possessed, brandished, or otherwise used. Um, And then what we get into is the distinction is that fake object used in such a way that it has a coercive effect. And that's what the Benston case and the Hano case really stand for. And the reason, you know, those were 2008, 2019, neither one of them cites this district court opinion from Nebraska that Gesey relies so heavily on in its brief, and that was back in 2006. Uh, so these courts have had opportunity to consider similar facts and similar acts on behalf of the defendant and found uh, that the coercive effect or acts by the defendant with a fake weapon that would otherwise be believed to be a dangerous weapon qualifies for the otherwise used and would then prohibit or uh, make it so aberrant behavior would not be available to a defendant. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Clapper. Mr.
1: Hagan, we are back to you, and you have about 38, 40 seconds of, of rebuttal time or so.
2: C- Counsel, if, if I could jump in. <laughs> Sorry. Um, if, do you agree that there's no real factual dispute about
0: what happened? And I think you maybe uh, go ahead, sir. I, I, I was going to start with your question. The factual basis statement is the, the anchor point for the facts, and we don't dispute that. So, That's what so, the court's reasoning was— predicated on. So
2: why do you need an evidentiary hearing um, if there's really no factual dispute? Isn't this really a legal call on the significance of, based on the fact, in other words, whether the departure could have been achieved based on the facts that you don't dispute? And then there's a kind of a legal call that goes along with it, and that is what is the implication as far as waiver or prior finding? Aren't those legal questions here so there's no hearing needed?
0: Well, so the dispute is between my client's testimony, which says the lawyer never talked to him about it at all. His trial counsel, um, I was appointed to this for this appeal, um, but you know, trial counsel says I, I made an active decision, and my client says it was never discussed at all. But to to speak to your point, Judge Kobus, I, I think we're entitled to an evidentiary hearing as a matter of course and is preferred under 2255B. What what troubles me is is that the district court said well it never would have been um, available to you because it's otherwise use and to speak to one of judge Stra- strauss's questions it, i think the court made a finding here i mean i think the government waived it and then the court also made a finding it goes to both issues it's baked into the finding that this is a uh... offense conduct of twenty two and remember that there's a finding that this is a three-level enhancement which is brandishing not four-level which is otherwise using And I'm I'm trying to respond to the the questions from the panel. Um, If if I may, the relief- I'll give you 15 more seconds. we got to wrap this up, but go ahead. Understood. The relief we seek is to remand so that my client may pursue his claim uh, and have an evidentiary hearing. Thank you for the court's indulgence with my technological issues.
1: Thank you, Mr. Hagan and let the record note that uh, you were appointed under the Criminal Justice Act and the court appreciates your willingness to take take the representation Um, the case is submitted and we will issue an opinion in due course.